Welcome back to Dev Dive episode 34. I'm your host, Nighthawk. Today's guest is Chris Tom, aka Pwith, head of communications and community at Three Cash Games. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, so part of the reason why I wanted to have you on is one, we've had so many rioters on the show recently and over the past years that we've been doing the show, I'm like, okay, we gotta branch out from just rioters. This is a general game dev thing. Of course, the reason that I even know about you is from your time at Riot. Uh, you you were at Riot for almost seven years, eight years? Eight years, yeah. Eight years, wow. Um, but you've moved on. You've moved on to Theorycraft, which is... I've been doing a lot of research on Theorycraft recently. I even got into the uh, the Project Loki playtest, which I'm very excited about. Oh, hell um, yeah. So we can talk a little bit about your role right now at Theorycraft, and we can go in-depth more later in the show. So what do you do as a head of community... Like what, what does that do for the audience for a game? So there's, it's interesting because I think that this is a new role that is spinning up and you're seeing it open it up at a lot of ex-Riot studios in particular, or folks who have had dealings with Riot, like worked at Riot and then spun off their own studio or went back to Blizzard, so on and so forth. Um, specifically, I think, one, there's this idea of like, community as the relationship that you have on an ongoing basis with the players who play your game. And that's becoming more and more important. It's not just like, you know, posting on forums and, and doing customer service. It's now about like, what is the conversation that you have? And so for me joining Theorycraft, I was kind of like the first person in quote unquote marketing, but also just like community communications. And so at Theorycraft, my job has basically been uh, pretty much everything like we just actually had a head of marketing just join us and so thank god we're now like two um but for my year that i've been at theorycraft it's been about setting up like whatever our social channels are whatever our content strategy is uh growing our community of playtesters, um, which i am definitely going to be shilling um and also i think thinking about like long term like how do we bring in influencers and creators and content creators and streamers to check out our game build long-lasting relationships um, thinking about positioning of our game, thinking about how we want to talk about our game to press as well, and what channels we want to use when it comes to even just straight up marketing our game. So it's kind of the whole entire gamut of how do we as a studio and as a game developer and as a product making like the game that we're making introduce and connect ourselves to the world. It's really interesting that you bring up um, that this is a fairly new role to game dev because the more I think about it, I think you're actually right where like in the past there was always, there was always community managers and, and people who worked with the community, but I don't think it ever really was to the extent that you you explained with your role. Um, like back in the day, I, I remember community managers mostly just being in charge of social media channels, mostly just being in charge of relaying information from the team to the community. But I think, the role that you fill goes a lot further than that and expands a lot further out, um, which is really interesting when you try to relate it back to more traditional uh, industries, because like you said, it's a, it's a marketing quote unquote role, but it's, it's so much different than, than traditional, what traditional marketing may look like, um, which I think is one of the really, really fun parts of what game dev has done for the tech industry. They've put a, a huge mm -hmm. spin on everything where it's not just the same. You can't just take a role from like Facebook or something and, and put them all the way over into game dev. It's, it's a completely different field. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the, the growth and change of the community management role, I think um, 
Riot to me has been a proprietor of that and like a pusher of that for like, I think they really, really changed the mindset of it. Um, and what I think of in terms of like the, the epochs almost of like how marketing has, has changed or community has changed. I actually think Blizzard was sort of the first one to really change it in that uh, Blizzard, you know, like two decades, three decades ago was considered one of the most transparent and open game companies in when they're making Starcraft or Warcraft because they were using the channels that were available to them to engage with their audience, which was actually mostly press and journalists. But they were really, really open with press and journalists. They were talking to them about challenges, problems, whatever. And then eventually they tried forums. But I think there's a lot of fear around, you know, we don't, which spokespeople do we want out there and whatnot. And so Blizzard kind of went from the cycle of like being the most out there game studio to suddenly Riot Games came out and they're like, everyone on social media, everyone can talk, do whatever you want, figure it out. And that change, I think, that paradigm shift was really critical because I think um, the role of communications is really how do you talk to your most engaged audience? And for a lot of other companies, your most engaged audience is actually your shareholders or kind of like a customer base in some way. But these are people who have just bought the thing and they don't care about like the actual dialogue. But in gaming, when you play a game, you want to have a conversation. If you're the most engaged in a game, you want to know where the devs are bringing it because you're so invested in like the mastery loop of this game. You want to know that the people who are iterating on it live, who are updating it, you want to trust them. And that means having this ongoing relationship and conversation. Like, do you actually know what you're doing? Do I share your philosophies? Do I believe in the vision of where you want to bring this thing? And so that's why I think this concept of community first and community merging with communications and that whole entire craft coming from Riot, but then also expanding out is a result of game studios who are like, we care about the relationship we have with our most important audience, which is our players. And the craft of that is not PR anymore. The craft of that is not like stakeholder, like shareholder management. The craft of that is specifically, how do you talk to an authentic audience about the game you're making? How do you share values? How do you share principles? How do you actually talk about patch notes or game vision? Yeah, I think, I think, it's been incredible to see the shift in communications and games over the last decade, even. Um, when I started the show in 2017, we've had a lot of hiatuses. That's why we're only on episode 34. <laughs> when I started the show in 2017, one of the the groundbreaking reasons for doing the show is because um, back then, even back in 2017, which is fairly recent, there weren't a lot of open communication channels between the people who actually make the game and the people who are playing the game. Um, and something that I wanted to do is I wanted to give some more of uh, the humanization side of people to to see that, mm-hmm. hey, these people who are making your game, it's not, a, it's not just a faceless company. It's not just a group of people. It's not even just a team of people. There are individuals who make up these people, key, key people on these teams who are making these decisions and they're seeing what you're saying and hopefully they're, they're receiving that feedback in a positive way. Um, and since we've started in 2017, I think, like you said, Riot has done an amazing job really humanizing their developers a lot more than I think most other game companies have really gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we have streamers at Riot, we have uh, Riot devs who are streaming to We're massive audiences. Yeah, yeah, just just full time content streaming, which is incredible. Um, some of my favorite streamers uh, are are Flox and and Afic over on the the balance team over at Riot, or sorry, the gameplay analysis team over at Riot, and they 
mm-hmm. spend their whole time on their stream just answering questions from chat and being incredibly patient with with some of the more uh, caustic members of their community and just being um it, i i don't really understand the level of patience they have for some of some of the questions they get um it's really inspiring to see them uh take time out of their free time to to do stuff like that so it's really cool to see that that happening more and more and i'd love to see it happen at more companies so very excited to see what happens with theorycraft it's very hard is the thing that i'll i'll say i mean um that was like entirely my job when i joined riot i i, I don't want i'm not like in the sense that when I joined Riot, Riot had adopted the philosophy of devs should, you know, be communicating on forums, on social media. Forums, the vBulletin forums were probably the most popular at the time that I joined, which was 10, 12, 10 11 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. Um, and But at that time, I think even for Riot, they were like, we don't actually know the ramifications of this. In the sense of like, when you put your whole entire company on the forums, what happens? You get emotional burnout. You get people who like call, like just insult people on the forums. They they lose their patience. They you get people who are seeking fame who join the company who uh, turn into streamers. And you're like, did you build that on your merit or did you build that on you know the, the actual uh, company? And I'm not using that to like kind of um, talk down on those people, but I do think like you attract a certain kind of person, and you really have to figure out like from a strategy perspective for the whole entire company, how do we actually embrace this and feel good about this? And that basically was actually the reason I got hired at Riot. Um, Prior to, I was just like a a journalist and I was doing a lot of work around how do you connect devs to players and and their communities. And when I joined Riot, it was like, okay, we do this, but it's like, it's a disaster all the time. Like we are running from issue to issue. We're apologizing because we're saying something here and it's getting misquoted over here. And we need a lot of help in terms of how do we figure out how to like really scale this thing into where's like a modern day strategy around communications and community. Um, It's really, really hard. You have to prepare people emotionally. You have to create the right channels to communicate at scale. You can't just like shove a dev out and be like, hey, just go do the thing. But also you have to tap into a lot of natural energy because some dev teams, you'll join them and they're really quiet. They're like, really, I just want to make the game. I want to hear feedback and I want to just work on this thing. Others, you have a dev who's like, put me on camera. Let me go out there. Let me start streaming. Let me slog with them. And that energy, you have to harness it. You can't just like walk in and just say, hey, everyone, I'm going to put us on Twitch and then we're going to go on Twitter. We're going to do this thing. You have to like go with that because in all honesty, for a lot of these devs, it's not their job. Like, You've mentioned this is like how like they seem like naturally capable at this. Really, it's through a lot of sifting. You like walk through the whole dev team and you're like, who's interested in this? Like who gets energy from this? If you do get energy, how do we help you out with amplifying you, with training you, with doing stuff like that? But obviously at some point, if you like overtrain someone, maybe you lose that authenticity or maybe they're there for the wrong reasons or all this kind of stuff. Maybe they don't even want to say some of the things that you're like, hey, this would like, you know, position the product in a really good way. And they're like, I don't want to say that shit. I want to be, I want to tell them they're all fucking wrong. And you're like, well, okay, what do we do about that? That's really funny. There is the pitfalls that you mentioned is something that I think probably a lot of people know implicitly just by thinking about it. But I think it's really important to, to voice those concerns because they can cause issues. And, and, Riot has had their share of of public relations debacles in the past, and 
They've, I mean, they've gotten through that pretty well to give them credit. Um, yeah. But I think that that really goes to show that that there is a lot more to it than, like you said, just getting a dev out there on camera or on Reddit or on Twitter and just letting them go wild. Um, right. So I don't envy the people who have to go through the scenes and try to balance authenticity with um, l- letting people just say whatever the heck they want <laughs> because some people will, will use and abuse that power. Um, exactly. So getting a little bit back on track, what made you think, and we talked a little bit about this in, in your last uh, segment, but what made you think this is the job that I want to do? I think for me, um, one is my whole entire career it has been a lot of iteration on on what gives me energy and, and joy. Like I wanted to be a writer growing up, um, but I come from like just like a very poor family. And so I think when you want to be a writer and you're poor, the first thing you're told is don't because you can't make money. Um, and so for me, it was about, well, then figuring out how do you leverage this love of communication or telling stories or empathy with others. And I tried a lot of things, actually. I did screenwriting. I did um, like essay ghostwriting. I did essay editing. I did copywriting. I did just general marketing. I went into journalism, uh, blogging, things like that. And I think the thing that um, if I wasn't doing this, which I know is like kind of like a question that you were going to ask at some point, which is like, what would I do if I wasn't doing this? I really want to go into book publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized like after having done screenwriting and creative writing, I don't have the kind of the energy, I guess, or the vision to be like, I'm going to do my thing. But what I really wanted to do when I came out of college was, well, one of three tracks, journalism, book publishing, being a book editor, or this. And I think that this has probably been the most sustainable career that I've been able to develop. Um, but book publishing, in all three, I think there's this idea of like, there are people who really want to talk with the world. And like, they have, they're like incredibly smart, but their ability to communicate their ideas is just lacking in some way, shape or form. They see the world in some way, and they don't know how to communicate that vision of the world to others. And that's like a really sad thing to me. When you want to write, I think it's about this empathy of connecting others to this like shared worldview. The first time that like my, I really didn't feel alone was when I read a book and I was like, holy shit, like someone feels this way. And they were able to tell me a story that articulated that feeling in a way that I felt. And the moment that that, that happened, I was like, one, I want to do that. And I was like, okay, shit, I'm not really good at that. But then two, I am really good when someone walks in the room and they're like, hey, I want to do a thing. I want to talk to these people about my intentions and my motivations. My execution might not be perfect, but my intentions are pure. And I would love if you helped me like, maintain that purity of intention because that's what actually helps people keep on doing what they're doing. It's not like if I screw up, the, the thing that's painful is not people telling me like, hey, you screwed up but it's that they misinterpret my intentions. They go, hey, you screwed up. You must hate me. And I go, no, 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 I don't hate you. I just suck at what I'm doing. And having someone who's like, hey, I can help translate that so that if they are mad at you, they can tell you, hey, you screwed up in the execution. I love the intention. And that connection and helping people actually stay connected to the world without shutting down, without feeling defensive is really, really cool to me. And I didn't know that this was something that I was really excited about. I was like, book publishing is cool. Journalism is cool. And I started working at Riot. And the first project I got put on was to basically write the patch notes. Um, and specifically, I think that was when Riot was like, we need a new way to like 
deliver this kind of context. And so the idea we had was let's share context on the patch notes. Let's actually like tell you why we're doing what we're doing. And I think that was the first time like anyone at least at scale had really adopted this methodology. And when I walked onto the team, I was like, hey, I'm going to start like telling them the reasons why you're doing it. And all of them were like, we don't actually want to put our names on it. Um, Cause they're like, that's really fucking scary to yeah. be like, I'm nerfing this thing. And everyone's like, look in his match history, check him out, do all this kind of shit. And so being able to be like, Hey, I'll just like, I'll just write this thing. And then I'm going to go to each and every one of you. And I'm going to spit back to you like a little paragraph that I think is funny and witty, but also represents what you're trying to get to. And hopefully you'll feel representative of that. And what happened from there was that I think like a lot of devs were like, cool, that is exactly what I intend to do and tell them that. And then they get punched. Like the players would be like, that's a stupid fucking reason. And, but at least the dev would be like, okay, I understand how to change my worldview. I'm a little bit detached from this. I still believe in like the grand vision of the thing, but clearly there's some feedback. And this idea that you get to work with all these people and they get to learn and grow and do all that kind of stuff is like, is really fun to me. And that's, that's the thing that I think I'm really enjoying now is like game development is so collaborative. It's the most collaborative like career and craft and industry that you can have. Everyone has to contribute to the stew. And so this feeling that as somebody who's not like, I'm not a developer, I'm not like, you know, I don't work in code, I don't do any of this, but like that I can contribute through the act of what are you all trying to do and say, is just really fun. Yeah. Uh, there's actually like a few things I want to unpack there. Um, I want to start with what we ended on where you said like, oh, I'm not a developer. I don't work in code. That is also another one of the things that we based this podcast off of when I first started. I, I um, One of my core beliefs and one of the beliefs of, of Larry who helped start this show um, was that you don't have to be uh, somebody who is sitting at a computer writing writing engineering code all day to be called a game developer. I think we... Mm we really believed that anybody who works and contributes towards the vision of the game, whether that's in communications, uh, accounting, marketing, engineering, QA, they're all developers. And, and I think that's something that um, I've tried to to push a lot over the past three years. And I'm happy, obviously from no contribution to me, but I'm happy to see that I think more people are comfortable referring to themselves as game developers or referring to other people as game developers, even if they're not sitting there and scripting out uh, stuff like that every day, which is really cool. I have a personal thing, which is like one, I agree. I think holistically in like, I believe myself as a game creator. Like I think that I contribute to the value and the the enjoyment of a, of a game experience. Personally, I will say that like, I don't think of myself. I, it is actually more on like a nitpick of like the word itself. I think like what people, when they are like, I want to be known as a game developer, it, it has to do with more like credit. Uh, mm -hmm. I want to be given credit that I've contributed. I'm like, absolutely. Um, like anyone who helps build the vision of this game is contributing to that game. They are a game creator. I think of developer as kind of people who work specifically in the, the, like, the development of the game itself. Mm -hmm. But I know that that's probably like, I think by picking that line, I'm probably like drowning a whole lot of, of like gains around... Um, credits and and being able to like feel involved and like a part of the group so i won't i won't hold that line no no it, it's it's personal i think personal belief is 100 percent valid in whatever way you want to take that um i think this really just goes to show of title inadequacies in 
tech and game dev in general. Um, my my title for what I do is uh, I'm, I'm a trust and safety specialist, which doesn't really tell you anything about what I do. Uh, and that can mean a number of different things depending on, on what I'm working right. on. Um, and I think at the end of the day, if you're going to just have like a little elevator pitch for your role, it needs to be something that at least tells people what you're working on. But I actually think game creator does a better job at that than game developer. Um, mm. I just don't know how widespread that is outside of, outside right. of like this, yeah. this very niche field. I totally agree. I think game developer is the general lexicon of you've contributed to the, the game. And that's like, you know, that's language. And so I'm like, I think of myself in that definition totally as a game developer. And I think that anyone who, you know, works in the team to bring this thing to market, totally a game developer. Definitely. Um, bringing it back a little bit to what you said at the beginning of, of that tangent, I really liked how you brought up the fact that there are some incredibly intelligent people out there who just may not be the best communicators and may not be really good at communicating their, their craft. Because I think um, the public may have a general misconception on, on intelligence where they, they see somebody who's very well-spoken or they see somebody who has, has a very uh, charismatic personality um, and not saying that they aren't intelligent, but using that as the only metric uh, of intelligence. Whereas I think they're, I, some of the most intelligent people I know are, have just abysmal social skills <laughs> and they just have no, they have no way to, to, to really communicate what they're thinking uh, effectively, at least to a wider audience. Like they can communicate very effectively to people who know what they're talking about, but mm -hmm. maybe not to people who have no context on what they're saying. Um, this so is the I, thing I, I, I will just say is like, I think is a big struggle around like social media and things like that is like, there's just such a specific like conform conformation for how you need to look, do act or whatever in order to be perceived as successful or smart or whatever contributing. And I do think like that, that's such a, a terrible thing to exist in. Cause I think in, in this idea, it's the same reason I think that people sometimes are like, sometimes people want to write because they want to create what's inside of them. I think other people want to write to like connect with others this feeling that like you can't connect with people because like the on a systemic level you don't meet the hype bar in order to contribute is is like devastating and so having people i think who genuinely care about hey you have an opinion and that opinion is like valuable is is just like i think really important to me yeah and i think i think the anonymity of the internet at least in its early days did a lot to i mean it did a lot of terrible things let's be fully honest but it yeah. did a lot to um sort of give people more of an outlet to to express themselves without fearing repercussions based on what they looked like what they sounded like how they communicated as long as they had decent writing skills but of course that bar is there's got to be a bar somewhere um right um but yeah i think i think that's it's really interesting to see somebody who has a different perspective on on how to liaison with that with that aspect of people uh, more than just working on like you said conforming to what society may think is the most attractive thing at the moment. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on that you said is you said you were interested in book publishing. Um, this is a field I know less than nothing about. I consume a lot of books, but uh, I'm mostly a fiction person. Were you referring to nonfiction? I wanted to work in fiction, so. The story I have is, it's funny because I went to school for um, journalism um, and then 
the very last second, I was basically told by all of my professors, uh, you should not be in journalism. Like this thing does not pay and there's no careers here. Um, and the whole entire field is getting, because yeah, they, they were just like, one, it, when I was entering university in like early 2000s, um, we were just on this cusp of, do you need a master's to, in journalism in order to actually be a journalist? And when I was going through college, the answer was basically becoming no, because the internet blogging and everything like that, like it, the answer might've been, yes, you need a, a master's in journalism to work at like a prestigious outlet. But throughout the whole entire time in, in my education, they were just saying like, we're getting pummeled by the Buzzfeeds, the Huffington Post, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so last second, I was like, maybe I'll pivot to book publishing. And so I tried learning book publishing. I moved to Toronto. I was in Canada at the time. Um, I got to the final stage of interview at Penguin to be an assistant editor on their nonfiction. And literally the guy calls me and he's like, get out. He's yeah. like, you should not be in this industry. He's like, nothing oh, not okay. to be mean. It wasn't like, it wasn't in a mean way, but he was basically like, listen, one, this is an entry level position that pays like well below what standard entry level is. Two, your competition all has 10 plus years in the industry, but they have nowhere else to go. And three, he was like, book publishing is dying. Like the act of editing, even fiction, nonfiction, whatever, all it is right now is a platform to getting into transmedia, telling you television series adaptations, whatever. But at the end of the day, he is like the idea that you have around like trying to help authors, you know, connect with the world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And you have to think about the next 40 years of your career. And he's like, I don't think you should be in this industry. Um, I want it to be a nonfiction. I think I just like, I, I love, uh, like magical realism is kind of the, my favorite genre, although I'm getting more and more into sci-fi. I think like William Gibson, I finally started reading Gibson and like, he's fucking blowing my mind. I have hated actually sci-fi for the longest time. Um, but things like Murakami, Salman Rushdie, like these guys, I think there's just something like really incredible about the, the depth of their writing that I really wanted to like contribute to and help find more of. Um, one, I love science fiction. That's, that's been my favorite genre forever. So I'm glad that you're finally warming up to it. Um, I actually haven't read I'll take any recommendations, by the way. I'm, I'm currently listening to, to, uh, the Red Mars trilogy, which is by, let me double check the author. Uh, I'm a big audiobook guy. I just love listening to books when I'm either working or, or trying to go to sleep. Uh, it's by Kim Stanley Robinson. Excellent. This this genre, it, it's I think it's mostly called like rational fiction, where it's like it's science fiction, but it's based on technology that we can sort of reasonably uh, understand. I see that it's yeah, like yeah, yeah th this is like, like acceptable fiction almost. Yeah, yeah. And this was uh, these were actually written back in like the eighties or something, and so they're based in like the twenty forties. So like the stuff that they're talking about um, was predicted fairly well. I think I think that I think. It's a really interesting uh, series. It's very character driven, which is less common for for science fiction, at least the the books that I've read. Uh, oh. Read, but it's really good so far. I'm enjoying it. Um, okay, I'll look into that. Yeah, it, yeah. It, depending on your tastes, um, I, I have so much science fiction. I love it. Uh, there's uh, Andy Weir, obviously does very good entry level science fiction with with The Martian and uh, his newer book Project Hail Mary, which I think is an excellent read. Um, but it definitely is more of like, it feels more like a young adult novel, which is not a, a diss mm. towards it, but it's, it's just a different style but, of book. Yeah. Um, 
there was another thing. The, uh, okay. the three body problem. Um, I like slammed it on a flight from LA to New York during the worst turbulence that like I'd ever gone through. Like New York was kind of like in like kind of a quasi hurricane and I had nightmares because like the three body problem is like deeply existential and I was just like blazing through it while this plane is going fucking crazy. And then I just couldn't sleep for like a week thereafter. I just had like nightmares the whole time. One of the scariest books uh, I've ever read, um, the the Shrike Saga, uh, what's the Hyper- Hyperion? Uh, which I've is, had recommendations. I have not read. It's really, really good, but it's so different from most of the books that I've read that it's it's kind of hard to recommend to people who who haven't really gotten into the the genre yet. It's it's like science fiction mixed with fantasy mixed with sort of like what you were saying like a very existential uh, almost philosophical point of view on the world. It's super interesting. Um and it's just the the latter the last uh portion of the book, the last act just goes off the rails so hard that if you're listening to it in an audiobook form, it's just like is this the same book? Why the wrong book? Yeah, what the hell is going on? It's super interesting. Um the later books okay. are also really good, but I don't think they hit quite as hard as, as Hyperion does. Um, so definitely give that a listen or a read if you're interested. It's, it's super... Good it's, record. It's, okay. it's very cool. It, it's, it's very different from anything that I've read in, in the genre. So I think it has a lot of, a lot of impact just from that. But um, not to make this a book recommendation podcast as much as I'd <laughs> love that to be. Um, there was one other tangent that I wanted to go off on, but I totally forgot it was. So we've talked about this quite a bit, but I want to just get it officially out there. Do you have any other interests and hobbies outside of gaming that you want to talk about? Uh, gaming, reading, writing. Um, I really like live music, just like generally. I think um, I'll never be a musician, but I just love one, the idea that like all these people get out of their house and get together and like dance and throw away inhibitions and and just listen to someone who's like put a lot of effort into creating this live experience that like in all honesty can't scale like you know you have sometimes they do a stadium but sometimes like just sitting in a small little venue uh and just seeing like these people go up on stage and put put their heart out every single time is like it's just really cool um and i i hope i think like i love all the way from like giant music festivals to smaller intimate things. Like I just love this idea of seeing all these people who like genuinely love a thing coming together to just like hang out, vibe, listen to the thing, do the thing. Um, That's probably honestly like my, my major ones. I think that gaming consumes so much of my, my life. Like I, there's just like, I'm, I'm constantly gaming. um, And it's not something that it's something that I didn't think that I would, have like i think a lot of people kind of told me growing up it's like you'll grow out of this or whatever um i just love it i just love the idea of like connecting with my friends i love even playing like individual things i think the thing that i vibe with really deeply around theorycraft is like our whole entire goal just at a top level is like one games that you can play socially like that you can bring your friends in together and you can have adventures and stories you can play into the night and then two games are inherently about mastery about like you invest this time over and over into a thing that is really critical. Like I played ice hockey for eight years when I was in Canada and the act, the physical act of like skating, shooting, like training yourself in this way is so gratifying. 
And I'm like, why not do that for your brain and your hand-eye coordination? And that's like, that's games. And to me, I think that's like, that's just so, that's the thing that I just really love about the thing. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm just kind of like, it's, it's a huge part of my life. So. Yeah. I, I think something, some of the things that you mentioned there, like bringing friends and that really harkens back to like the old days of gaming for me when I was just starting out on league and I joined, I think my first game of league of legends, my friend, my friend brought me in and I had only really played uh, games like combat arms or, or battlefield before. So it was a, entirely huge pivot into into the yeah, paradigm genre. shift yeah 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 so i was awful of course and of course this was back when the servers were in california so i was also playing on one like 80 ping or something ridiculous um and i think uh one of the first things i said was man you have to spend a lot of time to get good at this game <laughs> you have to spend a lot of time i was playing like blitzcrank bot or something and he was playing kha'zix or no kha'zix wasn't even about back then i don't even remember um and that was that it it really did feel like something different to me at the time like like going from a game like like an FPS to a game like League was was such a different shift and it really had that appeal where it's like man I could get really good at this game if I played a lot with my friends yeah. and so many so many so many late hours into the night playing 3v3s playing custom 1v1s on the proving grounds back before it was the howling abyss um yeah, just a lot of great memories like that. So if, if if you can create that experience again for for a new generation of gamers or even some of the old generations of gamers, that would be amazing. Um, because that's the goal. Yeah, yeah, that's something that 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 I think not a lot of games can do well these days. Yeah. Um, so let's let's take things back. Um, way back, way back to talk about your education. So you, we've already talked a little bit about this. You were in journalism school. But let's talk about what your degree is in and why you decided to get it. So I have a double major in um, English and communications. Uh, I studied at Simon Fraser University. That's up in Vancouver. Um, specifically, I, I wanted to keep my options open around, like, I wanted to be a writer. So I needed to learn, I think, a little bit more about, like, just, like, what goes mechanically into, like, writing. And then uh, I splashed journalism and, and mass communications specifically. Um, mass communications, I think, was just kind of like a, I got lucky. I'll be honest, like mass communications, studying mass comms is like, has been the most helpful thing or was the most helpful thing to me. But communications in and of itself has evolved so dramatically since I was in school that um, I would say that my college experience um, now is, is pretty much like defunct. Um, two things though that it, it did help me with. One, it taught me discipline. Like I was a guy entering college who was just like skip classes all the time. I did a lot of online courses, but I think I was, when it came to writing, I had never been like really hit hard. I entered college, I wrote a shitty essay, I got like a C minus and I was like, wow, I can't like coast at all. And then eventually I learned to like, how do you adapt your voice? And that was when I started, I think, to get better at it. So college taught, taught me a lot of discipline, I would say. Uh, and then two, I think it just taught me about like the underpinnings and the mechanisms by which we communicate on a mass scale and how, um, how certain things just influence the way that people perceive those messages. Obviously, it was like at a different time and we were studying a different thing. But I think this idea that there are, you know, philosophies around even the concept of memes or anything like that was was definitely very helpful. And then how do you write a story from a journalistic perspective, I think was also very helpful because at the very least, it gave me a idea of how you write from a different voice, a different lens. Um, and then finally, it was helpful because it helped me immigrate down to America. 
um, you can't immigrate down here. Um, I'm on a I'm on a green card now, but like getting an H1 visa was probably one of the most difficult things of my life. Um, one, I'm not a very organized person, and so getting all of my like papers in order to immigrate to another country and work was uh, incredibly stressful because I was like, at some point, I know I'm going to miss like a thing, a deadline, a piece of paper, whatever, and I'm not going to have it, and they're just going to reject me, and I and that almost happened, but then it, like basically at some point they pulled through, and I got to work at Riot, and then um, got my green card during my tenure there, and so now I'm very grateful for that at the very least. And back then, um, they made—I don't know—I've I've never immigrated, so I can't speak to it very very well. But I've heard from other people that it seems like game dev has become more. Um, acceptable to to the immigration officers to be like hey i'm coming down to work in game dev were they giving you any trouble back then where they're like oh man this isn't a real industry you can't move here to work on that especially when it comes to community and communications i came down kind of in under communications and i think that what was helpful was like my mass comms degree and my journalistic background is like so when you have an h1b visa you have to prove like kind of that this candidate is like one of the rare candidates. They have a background, they have a training experience that only they can do. And we have, quote unquote, as a company, tried to hire within America and we couldn't. Um, and so that was definitely really scary. I think when I first, when they first offered me my job at Riot, uh, the government, like the US government rejected me. They were just like, we need more evidence. And so I had planned to move down to LA and then Riot was like, get out of here. Um, and then Diablo 3 launched, so I got to play D3 for like a couple of months while we figured all this stuff out. And I had to get like references. I had to get letters from professors who were like, this is why, you know, this background, this journalism degree, all this kind of stuff helps. And then eventually the government was like, all right, you can come down here. Damn, that's a huge pain in the ass. <laughs> Scared the shit out of me, let me tell you. Yeah. So I hope that process isn't as difficult now, but I'm sure it's it's still a huge pain in the ass. I've actually heard it got it's gotten worse. Really? Um, I think H1 H1 visas are like one of the rarest thing. I didn't know that coming in. Um but they're like expended a lot for like engineering uh people coming overseas and things like that. And so they're just like they're the only way and the only path for non-Americans to get into specifically American citizenship. Everyone else can kind of work only at that company for a temporary amount of time, but an H-1B allows you to get a green card, which then you can translate and then into something else. And then you can also just become an American citizen. So it's crazy, actually. I like big shout out to the uh, immigration lawyers at Riot. They like, they did a lot for me. So yeah, I'm sure they get, they get a lot of practice doing that, getting people yeah. moving over. One of the, one of the guests that I'm hoping to have on the show, um, Dan Honks, who, who, is a security engineer at Riot. He just emigrated from um, Scotland to LA, and I know he was having trouble getting his visa for the longest time. Um, and I think eventually he said something that the lawyers at Riot helped him out. So that was I know oh, that yeah. was a, a huge process for him. And I'm sure uh, if we ever get to have him on the show, he'll have a good story about that. Um, so so journalism and mass communications. Uh, a lot of people I talk to in game dev, they don't put a lot of weight into their degrees themselves. Um, how do you think your education has prepared you for your job, what you do right now? I do think, I think um, discipline was definitely the biggest thing. Like you're working with people who don't give a shit about you. Your professors don't give a shit. Your TAs don't. You still have to show up. Um, 
I would also say that my outside of college, so during that time, I had to I had to work in order to make tuition. And a friend of mine um, started a an essay editing company, and so I basically was like, all right, if you pay me on a per essay basis, how many essays do I need to edit to like basically make all this money? Um, and so I edited a, a ton of essays and just got really good, I think, in terms of like both copy editing, voice flow, things like that. And then every now and then someone would be like, I need help ghostwriting this part of my essay. And one of the things I thought was really fun was I would like read their old essays and then I would write a portion of it and be like, put it in their voice. And I'm like, there's no way you're going to get an A because you are a C plus student at best. And so I'm going to get you a C plus and, and hopefully we'll be in this area. And I think it was just, it was good just to um, see how far I think my uh, procrastination abilities as like a kid got tested. Um, I think very few get the ability to like actually get that really like hard honed with deadlines, with stuff like that during college. I think a lot of people either drop out or they like, they just like skate by in some way. But for me, I think like, because it was my whole entire living and my existence, like this feeling of you got to learn to manage your shitty procrastination abilities or else you're just going to like, you're going to die out here. So that was helpful. Yeah. I, I really like hearing about people's colleges experience because my college experience, I went to, I never went to a, like a full university. I just went to a community college and I had no interest in, in like making it work for me. And I think that was part of the reason why I never really enjoyed it is because I, I, I think you only really get out what you put in um, and yep. you can spend as much money on the most expensive college you want in the world. But if you're not willing to put in the effort yourself and, and at least get something out of it, then I don't think you'll really get anything. Uh, you, you won't get your money's worth. That's for sure. Um, but I, yeah. I, I, I love the common thread here from the guests I've talked to where it was like more of the experience of working with other people uh, forming that self-discipline, getting more and more uh, experience working in the quote-unquote real world that has done yeah. more to shape their to shape their career than the classes themselves, which I think is, um, I don't know if that speaks to the effectiveness of college, but I think it at least gives it more merit to be like, hey, this is going to be some of your uh, real-world experience, so you might as well try and make it work for you. One thing that I think was interesting for me was definitely that like, Professors, especially at SFU, a lot of them kind of came from the field. They were like externalists or whatever. And what it taught me actually was they didn't know, they knew some things, but they didn't know nearly as much as like I thought that they would know, if that makes sense. Like I think when you're in high school, you're trained to believe like my teachers are like everything. And then you go to college and like some old professor just comes in and he's just like, listen, you're all fucked. Like this thing sucks. This thing sucks. I have no answer for this thing, but I'm going to teach you to the best of my abilities. And you immediately like realize like, oh, we're, we now have to chart the chorus of the next wave of whatever the hell this thing is. And I think nothing was more true than in journalism and mass communications when all these professors who had come from very traditional like journalism backgrounds were coming in and telling us, I have no idea what BuzzFeed is going to do to the industry, what Fox News is going to do to the industry, what Huffington Post is going to do to the industry. But let me tell you, you're all in trouble. And just that, like, I remember hearing that and being like, wow, nobody knows. That's cool. I love, I love that you talk about that because I think that's one of the big life lessons of growing up in general is when you're a kid, yeah. you kind of believe that, the adults know everything. They know what's going on. 
And then when you finally get to the adulthood stage, you're like, okay, there's a lot of dumb people out there who don't know what the hell's going on. And even the smart people really don't know what's going on everywhere. So it, it gets a lot to learn that, hey, you kind of just have to figure out what you're doing as you go and, and hopefully not screw it up too bad. Yeah, right. Your fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So what do you think you would recommend somebody trying to get into your role today? They would take the same route and do the same sort of education? If they're like, if their desired studios are in America, honestly, I think not. Um, the main reason I say that is, and this is actually, I think, true, and we say this a lot at Theorycraft across almost every discipline, game design, art, engineering, uh, marketing, everything, is the market is moving almost too fast for a structured curriculum to keep up. And also, we're in a passion-based industry. Like we, the, the idea that you can go on a track and then get spit out and then get into a thing is really hard in a passion-based industry unless you are exemplary, unless you're like top one to 10%. And so all of those things, I think, add up to going into school, unless you're planning to beat the shit out of it, like hustle your ass off, get internships, like do everything, then it's honestly better off to figure out how do I just get this experience as soon as possible? Because the thing you need to test more than anything is your like your grit. I think the thing that I hear from the thing that I tell to everyone is what matters the most is just how much you push on this thing. And there's going to be times where like, it sucks. It doesn't manifest in anything, but like, you have to keep on pushing because in this industry, like that's the only thing that actually matters. When I look at resumes, when we hear from people, a lot of people are waiting for permission to do the thing. They're like, hey, how do I get a job so that I can finally begin designing games? And they're like, I get home from my other job. I'm tired. I can't do this stuff. It sucks. But the ad, actually, at the end of the day, there are people who still do that. They like, maybe they have the resources and the means to just do projects, to spike things, to volunteer for stuff 24 seven. But the fact is, is that they're doing that. And there's a lot of them out there. And so it's kind of like, it sucks to say, but it's like, if you want to get into this industry, you have to be willing to push and you have to kind of also accept that sometimes it won't pay out, but you just have to push regardless because the, the skill you need to train as soon as fucking possible is I got to do stuff, I got to get experience, and I got to prove that I'm willing to be self-motivated. Um, I say that a lot because like, to give an example, um, when I was at Riot, we had an internship pipeline for basically this like communications role. And we had like hundreds of applicants. And then at that point, I had just kind of joined the team and I had inherited the role. And I'm like, actually, I don't think that we have the bandwidth to be able to run this internship program. So I had to shut the whole entire thing down. And But for everyone who was in the next stage of interviews, I was like, you know what? I'm going to just actually do kind of like a fake interview with them and then let them know, but then also offer like direct mentorship if they wanted to get any like advice, insight, connections, whatever. Because I'm like, you're clearly talented enough to have advanced to this stage. I'd love to help you. And I talked to probably about 50 people and offered this idea of like, just reach out if you need anything. Only one person did. 
of every single other person. I'm not saying like I'm a great connection or you should always take advantage of this or whatever. But like of all of those people, only one person was like, hey, I would love to every, you know, like half a year or so check in with you, get some advice, get some support, do whatever. That person is now working in the industry and everyone else who's in that pipeline, I don't know if they're working in the industry. Maybe they felt like they didn't want to intrude. Maybe they didn't want to, you know, do any of this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like, that's the thing I think I'm talking about is like, you have to be willing to push. And sometimes it does get uncomfortable, but like, this is kind of what you're dealing with. Because even when I'm sorting through entry-level applicants, it's thousands of people. And of those thousands of people, 90% of them are like, I'm working this other job and I would love permission to work in games. And 10% of them are like, I'm working this job and I'm volunteering here and I'm doing this thing. I want to work in games. I'm working in games. Give me my fucking shot. Okay, so I want to break down a lot of what you just said. So I'm going to say a lot of things and feel free to refute any of them um, because I don't, I don't want to misrepresent anything that you said. So my perspective on game dev, and I've never worked directly with game dev, but I've been doing the show for a long time and I get to talk to a lot of awesome people. Um, and I'd like to hear your response to this to hopefully bring some light back to the world. Um, my perspective on game dev is one, Generally speaking, it's not the highest paid industry for most roles that have equivalents in other industries, especially tech, um, because tech is historically very well paid. Um, Two, it's very difficult to get into. Uh, You have to be very much on top of your game in both a professional sense and sometimes in your soft skills as well, depending what your industry is. Three, uh, turnover and burnout is incredibly high, uh, more so than in almost any other industry other than maybe directly entertainment. Um, and not just turnover, um, hopping around. Like I, I think something that I've seen a lot of is, is game devs um, directly change projects or studios once every two to three years on average, which is ridiculously high compared to some people who have been working at the same role or at the same company for 20 or 30 years. Um, so So why... Why do people choose game dev with all these negatives? And I will tell you, one, you're right. Yes to all the things that you just said. Uh, And then two, honestly, because this is like, this is the medium that gives us joy. Like, I think that people choose this. And this is why I say passion-driven industry is like, don't get into this unless you're intrinsically motivated to work in games. If you're extrinsically motivated, i.e. you want to have recognition you want the salary you want the stability you want all these things like that's hard that's really difficult um and they're very rare those roles are out there but they're very rare but you have to love games and then you also have to love beyond loving games because i'm like that's a requisite but you have to love what you do in games and this is like i think a thing that a lot of people miss is like sometimes i get a ton i would say actually about 90 percent of cover letters are also I love these games. I would give anything to work at Riot Games or Thirdcraft Games or wherever. And that's not enough. Like, because at the end of the day, everyone does love games and they want a chance. The other half of it is like, you need to love a thing that you want to contribute to the studio, whether it's like, I love, for me, I love helping connect developers to players. I love help growing communities that are inclusive, that actually allow for the the exchange of ideas so that we can make a better experience. That thing is what drives me. And so I will always get better at that thing. Even if nobody hires me, I will spend every single day trying to understand 
what makes communities tick such that if I ever work at a game studio again, which I would love to work at a game studio, I would want to help bring that value to them. And so to me, it's about like when you want, if you work in games, you got to have a sense of purpose. I think that's probably like the most critical thing that you need to have. You need to like love games and have this sense of purpose of what you want to bring to the game industry. There are ways that you can work at other studios, but like I'm telling you kind of, I think my idealistic perspective, and I'm really lucky. Like I, I get to work at Riot Games for eight years. I get to work, I got to work at like Improbable, which I, I think is a really fun insight into tech. I get to work at Theorycraft Games with a lot of people who I really admire. And so I know that like I get to speak from a place of privilege, to be honest. Um, and I think that there's, you know, a survivor bias that a lot of people have when they look at their whole life story and they're like, I must have manifested this. I got really fucking lucky. Like I, I, I had a lot of little lucky junctures that got me to where I am. And my break even into Riot though, like I got, I got hit by a car to get into Riot. I like, I was working at a coffee shop literally for, for a like, second. <laughs> I was working at a coffee shop job for like a year and a half. And cause like when I got rejected from Penguin, I was like, I have no fucking job now. And so I had to make rent. I wrote freelance, but I like got paid like a couple hundred a month. And I had to work at a coffee shop job for a year and a half. And I just had to like, I remember one day, like I'm just sitting in my room going like, this could be my life. Like I could just be doing this and that would be the end of that. And it's like, well, you just have to hope you get lucky. And my form of lucky was I got hit by a car and I got workers comp. And so I couldn't like- Oh, you actually did get hit by a car. I, had to, I couldn't. I, I thought couldn't this was a like metaphor for a second. <laughs> I couldn't work for six months, and so at the place that I was writing at, I was like, "Listen, I have more time because I can't physically work. I'm just gonna whatever you want to do, like whatever projects you need, whatever things that I can write, let me fucking write them." And then my editor in chief at the time was quitting, and he was like, "Hey, you know, you've been actually like stepping up. I think that you should take on this role." That was my break. And then I worked in that role for about a year. And then Riot was like, hey, we see what you're doing. You should come down here. That like, I might not have gotten that. I probably wouldn't have gotten that, to be honest, if I didn't like just a series of lucky events. And so I, but I can say like, I think for my place of privilege is my, my like reverse engineered story is I hope everyone continues to push. I realize that not everyone's going to get hit by a car and get their lucky break. I wish and hope that not everyone has to get hit by a car to get their lucky break. But also I will say that like, now that I'm in this position to hire, to, to mentor or whatever, I hope that people realize that like pushing is actually the only thing that they can manifest in the world. The only agency you have in the world is really how hard do I go? And that sucks to say, because I think in like a hustle culture, I think it, it does, it's a weird thing to promote. But it's not like about burn yourself out. It's like find your purpose and get really fucking good at it and 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 push. And for legal reasons, I just want to clarify, um, Chris is not advocating that you get hit by a car and put yourself in a position where you do get hit by a car. I'm uh, not advocating at all. Just want to be clear. <laughs> no, yeah. Being that, very that, clear. Uh, that's a very that. that's a very interesting way of putting it. And I think I think your story is probably similar to a lot of people's, maybe not the specifics, but the generalizations where it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of passion um, and it takes a lot of luck. And I think that's just one of the things that, that um, I mean, you hear it, you hear it from people, you hear it from, especially from like people in, in the entertainment industry. It's like, oh, I'm incredibly lucky to be here. Um, but you don't hear the stories from the thousand people who it didn't work out. Um, yep. And I think that's something that, that, 
survivorship bias is definitely the, the correct way to, to phrase it. It's just, you need to be cognizant that, that no matter how much work you put in, no matter how much effort you do, it's no guarantee. It's not, it's not a one-to-one input where the amount of work you put in equals the amount of stuff you get out. Um, right. So you need to, you need to be very, very cognizant of that before you decide that it wants to, it's, it's what you want to spend all of your effort on. Yeah. Um, so before joining Theorycraft, we've hinted about this a bit. Let's talk about a bit about your roles at the other companies you were at. Starting with, uh, there was you, there was one other role before this, but I think uh, it wasn't as relevant to to game dev as the other ones. Uh, your role at the essay company. Um, so uh, my whole entire start, so the start of my career actually was um, I I blogged about World of Warcraft. I um, I there was a period of time where I was playing World of Warcraft competitively and. Uh, Arena had just launched, and so I started up a blog because I was like, I need to start writing and putting stuff out there. Um, and the blog got fairly popular, and then I managed to parlay that into a writing job at uh, Alakazam, which is now Fanbyte. Um, but Alakazam owns like Wowhead, Thoughtbot, whatever, and they did a lot of like MMORPG editorial coverage. And so I got on as like a staff writer for them. Um, and then from there, I I stuck with that for like a number of years and then became editor in chief of that site for about a year and then joined Riot uh, as their head of like basically their communications guy for the live balance team. I wrote their patch notes for about two to three years and then uh, took over as like, I kind of actually, one of the things I've, I've done, I think is created a lot of roles for myself. So at the time, uh, Riot didn't have anything in communications um, and community was actually pretty hard capped at where I was. And so at that, when I was kind of doing my thing, I was like, you know what? We actually need a communication strategist uh, for the whole entire gameplay initiative to talk about like the reasons that we're doing the things that we're doing. Um, And so I grew into that. And then I pitched another role, which is called communications lead for League of Legends, specifically in this idea of like, how do people know long-term the vision of this company or this product? And I was like, hey, I want to actually pick up that job. So that was actually one of the funnest, I think, teams that I've ever worked on. Because we, um, that was when we announced Overwatch had just come out and was being the shit out of League, and everyone was like, "It's the League killer," and they were looking at Jeff Kaplan. They're like, "This guy is out there, and he's so connected." And Riot actually had like never done video or done much like direct video communications at that time, and they're like, "We need to spin up a thing to figure out like how do we get back into that relationship." And so that was actually when we started spinning up the Riot Pleases with Joe Tung. Um, got Mark and Brandon back on like camera. We did like a lot of stuff that was basically around like how do we talk as a company with our entire player base. Um, and so I got to do that. I got and then I switched over to esports to help them. And then I got switched over to Valorant to help launch Valorant. Um, and then after that, I think Riot to me kind of grew really, really big, really fast. And um, I think there was just like a number of reasons I wanted to really try something new. Um, but when you get to a really, really big org, I think. The organization starts to look internally. It's hard to really get stay focused on the players. You you start like getting consumed by like how do we do the thing well and efficiently. And I think that Riot still has like incredible soul. I believe in a lot of people over there, but it was like it was a very very big endeavor. I think, and so I joined Improbable um, because the head of publishing for Riot went over to Improbable, and Improbable was trying to spin up game studios, and so I was really excited about that, and I wanted to work on something new and build a whole entire team. Um, but their games did not do very well. Uh, and so I think 
it taught me a lot about the function of, of community, communications, marketing, things like that. But I think I realized very quickly, like if you, if you don't build a strong core around like a strong, fun game, I think it's really hard to do much of anything else. And we just couldn't find the spark, especially for a game like we, I think we launched Scavengers. Um, and then we're working on another game that spun out and actually has just been announced Nightingale, um, the survival MMO. They are now their own studio. And so after about a year, I decided it was time to like get away from, it felt like almost too tech. I think I'm, I realized I'm not a big fan of tech in and of itself. Um, and so Theorycraft reached out and then I've been here for about a year, year and a half. So I want to drill down a little bit more into those. You gave a great summary, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about the specifics. So Fanbyte, you started as a staff writer. You started as writing essays about World of Warcraft, which is amazing. Uh, what time frame was this? When 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 in the WoW history was this? Ooh, so this was just when, so mid-TBC, uh, I want to say like pre, because Wrath of the Lich King was after TBC. I burned out after TBC and I became a generalist like MMO reviewer. Um, and so around, uh, I don't know when this was, but like season four, let's say of Burning Crusade, I had joined, um, like I said, maybe season three, and I was just doing like broad, like MMORPG coverage, um, reviews, things like that. And I was doing that for a number of years. So for those of us who may not be oh, super sorry, familiar let me find a date. with WoW, <laughs> that's, I think as, as much as I think it might be like 2006, 2007. Does that sound right? I want to say, let's see. So I joined them 2009. Okay. Uh, was when I joined them. So yeah, a little bit later. I think, actually, wait, was that right? Oh, I think I might have changed my dates. I joined them when I was in the middle of college. I think two years, one year into college. And so, and I graduated 2009. So yeah, I think around 2008, 2007 was when I, I joined them. And, and then you, I was just kind of contributing. Did you balance this with the the other work that you're doing on essays, or did you sort of just like say, "Yeah, I want to"? So it, uh, basically, I was I was tutoring and then working um, at like a clothing retail shop, folding wow. baby clothes, uh, and then essay editing, and then um, blogging and and writing for for the site. And then I tried splashing in like my later years into like screenwriting. So you were you were really grinding with the energy that only a college student can have, <laughs> burning yeah. burning the candle at seven different ends. Um, yeah. Did, did you find that did it take any any took any toll on you, stress related? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one, I'm I feel really lucky in that, like as an individual, I'm not like I don't carry a lot of stress. Like I, I think I'm a very laissez faire kind of person, and so I think that really helped me. Um, but two, I was like. I was really scared, I think, because I had just come out of high school with like no career, like no concept of career. And both of my like my a lot like I, I just come from a poor family. And so this idea of like I had no guardrails. I had no rails even. This idea of like I had just entered what would be the final four years dictating the trajectory of like my life. And I had this like incredible wasn't anxiety, but this huge pressure of like, you better figure something out because if you don't, like looking around at your family, like you're just, there's like, you might just end up in a hole and there's no one who's going to pull you out of that hole. And so I think that 
that kind of pushed me to just be like, listen, you want to write? If you ever want to like write for your life or your career, you'd better hone that. And you'd better get like really good at, at figuring out how to commercialize that in some way, shape or form, or else you're just going to work something else and you're never going to, you're going to only be able to write when you get like home after your job. But I can't even do that. I'm like, I'm just too tired sometimes. Yeah. And I think, I think that really speaks to, um, the idea that, that there's not going to be always somebody, especially in, in, in fields like game dev, there's not always going to be somebody who's going to be advocating for you. You have to advocate for yourself pretty heavily. Um, and that is not just like going to say like, like embellishing resume or, or, or like talking yourself up to in an interview. That also means, means like you have to really grind and put that effort into, to make what you're saying actually true and not just BS about it (laughs) on your, on your interview or your resume. Um, yeah. So going from, going from uh, a more casual, like staff writer to the editor in chief of this organization, first of all, how big, uh, at the time, you know, how big Fanbyte was in terms of like Fanbyte, people working? Grand total, I want to say like 2030. Um, we had an offsite in Vegas before I even left and Tencent had just acquired Fanbyte. And it was really funny it was cause Tencent was a majority shareholder in Riot. Mm-hmm. And so even before I, like when Riot had given me an offer, I didn't tell my boss, but my boss knew because Tencent had to ask for permission to swap me over. Um, but yeah, I, I managed kind of like a small staff writing team of like five people, um, a copywriter, and then a couple like kind of junior writers that we paid like a couple hundred dollars a month to just like stick on random projects for MMOs. And then going from there, did you apply to Riot or did they, they basically reached out and headhunted you? So Riot reached out. There was uh, one uh, old EIC that I had worked with at, at Alakazam or, or Fanbyte. Um, he went to Riot to be kind of one of their um, uh, community guys. His name is Tamit or Andrew Beagle. And at, when Riot was spinning up this new team, they called it Arming Our Advocates. Um, people who work at Riot will get a kick out of that, that name. But like, um, it eventually transformed into uh, player relations. But arming our advocates was this, like, for them, a revolutionary idea around how do we connect with our community, talk with them. And so they had just started the team. And then Andrew reached out and was like, hey, you do basically this on the journalism side. Do you want to come and join this team? And so I was like, all right, let's, let's throw a resume in. And this was really pretty early on in League of Legends. I think uh, I saw on your LinkedIn around 2013. So that's like season, yeah. season three. Yeah, two, three, basically. When I came in, I got slammed onto like what was the f- like second seasonal update that they were working on, and they're like, "We have to figure out how to like package this thing." So, and were you familiar at all with League? Did you were you a League player at the time? I I got into like League. I think my account is number two hundred and fifty. Wow. <laughs> uh, I got into their alphas when we were just sitting around on Ventrilo giving feedback. I had got into like a friend introduced me to Dota and like late in its cycle and then i played a lot of han and then i and then when league was coming out and andrew uh tamet was over at, at riot he was like hey you want to come play this thing and then i kind of got hooked from there so the original I, I i know some people who uh played in the beta i don't know if i know anyone who played in the alpha directly but they have the very cool um ramus summoner icon where it's like oh yeah. you got masters and in beta yeah. or whatever it was called back then, top top five hundred players or whatever, uh, and I'm very jealous of them. Um, and then they, of course, they have the King Ramus skin, which is coveted. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, okay. that's my favorite skin. It's it's such a good skin. You could not get away with making that skin today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a good IP infringement skin. Yeah. So. <laughs> um. So so moving over from Fanbyte to Riot, you said you worked at as basically a patch notes writer. I'm sure that wasn't all you did. Um. What what other things were you doing on like a day to day basis there? So my main thing was um sort of the communications guy on the live design team. Uh, I think at the time there weren't many maybe if any, like people who are just like really deep into the gameplay communications. So specifically, it's this idea of like, you want to, you know, launch a new hero or champion, you want to talk about a seasonal update, you want to talk about these feature updates. Like, one of the things that I think you have to do is obviously deeply understand the product, like the thing that you're, you're selling. And me joining, I think, as someone who's just like really, really deep into the game, I was kind of used as this sort of communications SME for anything to do with like, how do we explain to players this feature? Um, and so I worked on, I think the first champion updates, like how do you explain why we're even updating Trundle and Sejuani in the first place? Uh, patch notes was at, like an every two week basis. And so that pulse point of how do we like spicy changes, esports changes, whatever, how to explain that. And then also I think I worked on a lot of like patch updates, all of its iterations with, you know, like. Morello and Jat talking over gameplay or sitting on a live set or um, Patrick Scarborough, Scarazar talking with like a panel, like getting roasted by Scara. I had to host a couple myself. Um, so that was, I think, consumed a lot. And then uh, also, I think I just got brought in on like when we just got yelled at a lot. So something would blow up on Reddit or our forums and people, and then we would have to huddle up and be like, why are they pissed at us? And part of my job was to be like, okay, this is like the history of that thing and why. And then let's talk about like what an actual solution looks like. What are we doing? How do we talk about that thing? And I think as I kind of grew in seniority at the company, one of the things that I think I got really good at was not about just like, hey, what are you doing? I'll go tell them what they're doing, which I think is what like old school community management is, is you just bring a list of grievances and you're like, are you fixing this? And then they go, yes. And you go, okay, they're fixing it. Um, it's okay, about like, fixing it. yeah, it's actually about like, how are you fixing it? Why are you fixing it? What are your limitations when it comes to fixing it? Like, what are you scared of telling them? What don't you want to tell them? And, and then sitting down and being like, Hey, it sounds like the solution even that you're trying to propose sounds like you're more trying to appeal to the masses as opposed to actually solving the intrinsic problem. Let's talk about the problem. And then let's talk about how we want to talk about the problem. And you don't even need to tell me like what you want to say. I'm just going to translate this conversation to the world. And that kind of became a lot of, I think the thing that I, I became good at, I was like, kind of like a fixer. It's like, Hey, we screwed this thing up because they don't get this. And I would come in and be like, they don't get this because it doesn't make fucking sense. And then we would have to have a conversation about like, well, what are you actually trying to do? And they're like, I'm trying to do this thing. And it's like, okay, that makes sense. Why this thing? And and then eventually, when you really break that whole thing down, you can actually present a really coherent explanation to people, or not. You get punched in the face, which is what we got through with like Dynamic Q. Oh man, yeah, man, I like Dynamic Q. I liked, I liked a lot of the controversial things that that Riot put out and subsequently killed. <laughs> um, <laughs> I so think they were fun. I think they were chaos. Yeah. 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 Chaos is fun sometimes. Uh, how did you define, like, how did you define um, legitimate feedback from some of the more just like 
I don't want to say it, just like dumb feedback. Well, or just like, just people just people hating on stuff to hate on things because especially on Reddit because uh, I'm sure you're intimately familiar. Reddit can sometimes just be um, a very uh, counterculture sort of platform to just be like they hate change. They hate new things. They hate anything perceived as like corporate, corporate changes. So how do you how do you work with that platform to be like deliver actual useful things to the people working on the game? The most important thing is to figure out worldviews um, from everyone. Like it's not just about like I need you to do a thing. Like it, I I talk about this a lot, and it's going to sound really weird, but like in terms of relationships. Like when you are in a deep relationship with somebody, it's not about you say like, you need to wash the dishes, you need to do the laundry, you need to do this thing and show up here. It's about like, I care about X, Y, Z. I see the world in this way. And I want to build a life with you. And this, this sounds really sappy, but like, I want to build a life with you because like, I care deeply about the way that you see the world as well. And game development, when I say it's like, it's hyper collaborative is this is also part of it. It's the relationship that you have with the people who care deeply about your game and play it. And so when they give you feedback, they will talk, yes, like, I want you to do the fucking dishes. I want you to nerf this guy. I think this is busted. But the real value of someone who is actually, like, not doing the work but is translating is, like, their worldview is this. Like, this is someone who cares deeply about this. They believe that counterplay is sacrosanct. They believe that point-and-click buttons are skillless, and so, therefore, you should get them out of the game. They believe all of these things. And then you tell that to a game designer, and a game designer is like, that's a that's a valid belief, but point and click buttons are really important for the longevity of our game. It's like that's powerful. Hold on to that. Don't ever lose that. But now I will go in out and I'll help figure out how do you like bring that person into the slice of this thing. And so a lot of the times feedback is coming from this place of passion. It needs a lot of filtering, but like you should just listen to a lot of the reasons. Like, why are they saying the things that they're saying? This is why I think to me, like really good feedback comes from a place of like expose your biases first tell me like hey i think the game should be this i think that this should be this i'm like these are the things that inform why i'm giving you this feedback and then i'm going to tell you this really pissed me off and so it takes a lot of reading honestly like you have to read a lot and you have to care about how people talk to each other and so that's the thing that i think is like really valuable to me like i spend every single day basically going through like subreddits, Twitter, random comments. I go through news posts. I go through as much as I can when, especially when like really crazy things happen, like things that are really controversial. I want to read as much like just mudslinging as possible because the thing that it's important to me is what is the worldview that these people are constructing and what is informing the reasons that they're saying the things that they're saying, because I want to be able to articulate both sides if I can. That's really fascinating how you put that so the way that you articulate yourself and the way that you articulate this it sounds like you you always had sort of things in hand and, and under control is there anything that you felt like you had to struggle with at the time is just like something that was really difficult for you to come to grips with i think there's two things that i i constantly have to come to grips with one is um i can't explain away everything you know, like there's this, this this feeling that like there are certain things that I'm like, oh yeah, we can just go in and we can explain this thing, and people are like, you're an idiot, and I I love getting checked by that. It doesn't it it doesn't feel great in the moment, but like in the aftermath, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like, I need to work on not my ability to convince people, 
but my ability to present a coherent worldview that people can actually understand. Um, I think the other thing is honestly, like not everybody, like there's business. I think this is just like, this is just a thing that I need to say is like, especially when it comes to community communications, what I'm able to do or what I'm allowed to do around like translating true relationships is a luxury. There are so many games out there who don't get to build a core audience, who don't get to have an ongoing relationship. And it was such an incredible like boom that I got to do that for eight years at Riot across multiple products and games and communities. And, but the, I was lucky in that like anytime we said something, people paid attention. But like there's this bare minimum like Maslow's hierarchy of awareness that like they have to care first. They have to care and invest in order to have a relationship with you. And that's something that I think is really interesting, you know, working in a startup. It's great to hone my chops around, like, how do you get people to care? We haven't talked about anything about our game. We haven't, like, made them care yet. How do I make them care? And I don't want to do it manipulatively. I think that's the thing that scares me the most. I look at a lot of Web3 studios. I think they're making people care by tapping into these really deep emotions of like greed or this wanting to belong. Like QAnon does this really well. It feeds these fantasies of like, I'm the, I am the only one that sees what's going on. Like that's really scary. And that's like the flip side, I think of community that is really easy to tap into when you're like, your craft is connecting people and helping them feel understood as you can quickly manipulate that into like making them feel like they have to stay. And so, but I'm learning that like, especially at like a startup like Theorycraft, we need to get people to care and we have to do it honestly on like a moral line that I have to be really okay with. And so I'm, I'm not like crossing any boundaries or whatever, but like I'm trying really fucking hard to make people like give value to the community when we don't have much of value to give. That's why I think we host things like career panels or I want to like, I'm pushing the devs as much as I can to like, you know, do USC career panels or anything like that whatever kind of mentorship we can give, I think that's valuable and we can always give that. So I'm like, we should just do that. Yeah. And jumping ahead a little bit um, from what I was going to, to say, I, I actually just wanted to bring this up now because you, you segued so brilliantly into it. Um, the str- what is the struggle that you have coming from a game like League of Legends at, at Riot, where it is the most popular game on the planet and has been for a long time? So you're coming into a game that people already care about vehemently to the level of, of incredible passion that produces some of the best and worst parts of the community. Um, and then you're coming from that to a startup studio, which has very little impact on, on the sphere yet because there hasn't been a game yet, um, at least a publicly uh, announced game or a publicly available game. Um, like going from those those two changes in the field what what is what is it what was that like Ooh, it's uh it's fun i mean i think i i love this in that like you get to build a relationship from the ground up and you get to really choose the things that are really important i mean i think that there are a lot of game studios that you know you have to do like kind of unsavory things in order to like growth hack and whatnot. I think that's important. I think that's like a really powerful lesson around like, how do you grab attention? Like that's just like a craft of marketing. Um, for us, I think I don't, I'm, I'm learning not to take anything for granted, which I really appreciate this idea that like no one cares about you. So how do you make them care in a way that is genuine and authentic? And I think one of the things that's really helpful is we do play tests like as often as we possibly can. And we've been in development for about two, two and a half years. I've been on a lot of game dev studios, 
this is this game has moved the fastest I've ever seen by like five x. Um, specifically because once you're inside, once you play the game, I think there's something really fun here, and we act on that feedback. And so, at the very least, it's like it's taught me like that relationship. You can start it really early. I wish we could talk about our game, but our game is actually very like there's a lot. Um, and I hope that you, you when you play, like you'll see it's like it's a genre mashup. We're not like at all just saying like we want to make the next great tax shooter. And I think I want to manage those expectations. And also like, you know, information is really precious to us. And so I want to make sure we use it at the right time to grab the most eyeballs. But it's been really fun, I think, just like kind of scrambling. Like we're like, I'm like a beggar on the street. Just so I'm like, please give me anything. Um, we will give you value. I, I will say one thing that's kind of shocked me is I I genuinely believe that like this team has just like a lot to offer in terms of advice, mentorship, and like there's just like really good insight here. And even still though, I remember at the start of uh, when I joined last year, I was touring a lot of like career panels and like game dev enthusiast studios. And they were all telling me, they're like, we see your, you know, your team's pedigree. We see like the things they've worked on. They've shipped like incredible games. We'll see if people are interested in showing up to like hear about what you're making, see a game in live development. We get like not that many people showing up. And I thought like, you know, look at these people. They've worked on, they shipped Overwatch. They shipped like League of Legends, TFT Legends. These are people who like were on the ground floor. And I'm not saying that to be like arrogant, but I'm like, these are people who have done exceptional things and want to share that. But what I'm hearing kind of out in the world is like the students are kind of overwhelmed. They're like, they're just getting newsletters and panels and shit just like yeeted at them. And they're at home and they're just like, they don't know how to like prioritize it all. They don't realize like, you know, this is valuable. This is less valuable. They don't know how to actually be like, it's just like, it's really overwhelming. And so that's something that I'm trying to figure out. And that's why we're hosting them on our um, discord is I'm like, if we're consistent about this, if we just create a space where people can come in, maybe over time we'll kind of build this reputation of like, hey, these guys just like care. There's value here. They'll host these things even if there's like 10 people. But like hopefully we can actually start to build a community of people who actually care about game development, who care about the game we're making. And But I don't want to lure them in around like this false sense of, you know, like you could get rich or we're going to like watch a movie together. I think there are some communities that are really great at that. Like, I think there are some really cozy communities, but like, it's like, that's not our vibe. Our vibe is we're going to make a great competitive game and we're going to build it with people in the open. Yeah. And, and speaking from an outsider's perspective, um, but someone who does create content in, in like the educational game development sphere, um, it is, it is just incredibly difficult. I, I think that that's one of the things that is hardest to come to grips with. Um, and it sort of echoes what we were talking about in, in game dev in general um, input in does not guarantee input out like you hours spent on your production, on your script writing, on your scheduling, on your marketing, anything that you put in is not going to necessarily result in people coming down. And and what you said is a hundred percent true. There's just so much out there for people to consume. And this is one of the, the, issues that I have with with sort of the content creation market in general where there's just so much so much um yep. that that it's it's past the point of oversaturation it's to the point where where the the market of, of people who are consuming this content and the market of people who are producing this content is like 
reaching it's gradually yeah yeah which is not where you want to be in that situation um which is why why you see so many so many people who are famous who have made it big they started out early they started out really early and they've built that over 10 years 20 years um and then they're sticking they're staying on top and it's very 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 difficult to peel people away from that base Mm -hmm. and sort of be like hey i'm working ridiculously hard to make this want to pay attention to this maybe and they're like no but i I really want to pay attention to this more this is what i've been paying attention to for 10 years um so disrupting that that uh complacency in in the community is very difficult um and i think the the if anyone's listening to this or watching this and, and needed some motivation to really get started with with their project that is a very it can be a very demoralizing truth but I think it really just gives you more of an incentive to differentiate yourself from the other people because the one thing that you can you can do as a new person in this field, whatever you're doing, um, is you can, one, differentiate yourself, but you have to differentiate yourself in a way that's attractive to the, 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 either the consumer, the player, whatever, you want to, whatever you're making. Um, so it, it it's, can be helpful, like you said, to make, like, oh, we're making the next... Overwatch making this League of Legends. Like you you may get some eyes on that based off of people who like those games, but at the end of the day, um unless your game is just so much better, unless your content is just so much better than those old pieces of content, then why are people going to like quit consuming those old people's content old pieces of content and move on to your content? Um right. so having that core idea behind it is so difficult. And I think um as a as a podcaster as somebody's making this that was just something that i accepted like i don't make this show to be like the most popular game dev podcast out there which i'm sure i don't even know what the bar is i'm not even sure what my competition is um i make this show because i like talking to people in game dev i like talking to people who are at the top of their game who are making incredible things and and really just putting passion into it because they have such insane awesome perspectives on what they do and and i think you really don't get that in other roles like you'll talk to somebody who is head of community at like a a uh, pharmaceutical company if that is if that is a role that exists and they could be passionate about insulin or something like that but it's not going to be the same level of of engagement and, and really just passion that you see in game dev um yeah. so i love that you you have have come to that conclusion with theorycraft where you're like hey we're putting this value out there if people want that value they're free to come and take it um but we're not going to be trying to manipulate people into joining our community and for something that it's not going to be like that's not who we are um yeah it's a really very interesting perspective that i don't think people can really see from the outside unless they've they've experienced something like that um it's hard you know if a tree falls in the forest no one hears that kind of thing you know if a game with with a great team that we think is a lot of fun uh you know develops in in isolation and no one hears like at the end of the day like that is just like a truth it's like if no one's paying attention you can't do the things that you want to do and so we have to learn how to just bootstrap this whole entire thing together um and I don't think that's like a, a bad thing. It's just like, that's just like the nature of the world. And I, I'm glad I get to do
do that alongside a thing I really believe in. I think if I had to do this in a thing I didn't believe in, that would probably be a whole entire different issue. So Yeah, you'd have to be very, 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 very motivated by something <laughs> to get that Correct. to work. Um, jumping yeah. back a little bit before we move on, because I'd love to talk about theorycraft. I actually have a whole section on that, but I just wanted to, to finish this last section quick, real quick. Um, after Riot, you left Riot, you, you moved on to Improbable. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about that, and then we can move on to Theorycraft. Uh, so, so, so yeah, what what attracted you? You already spoke a little bit about like how um, Riot had kind of shifted away from some of the values that you currently had. Um, what what attracted you towards Improbable? I think Improbable um, was interesting just from like a, a fresh start, um, getting to work with, uh, shout out to, you know, Chrissy Inak, he's their head of publishing over there. And um, Chrissy Inak was the VP of publishing at Riot for a I want to say like 10, 11, 12 years. Um, and he was just like a, a, a leader that like believed in me and, and was responsible for a lot of my career growth at Riot. And so when I was looking for something new, specifically, I think to build something that I thought was value aligned, um, I really wanted to work with with him. And also like big shout out to Herman Narula, who is the CEO of Improbable. That company is, uh, Herman is crazy. He's just like got so much energy. Um, but he has like, you know, like the, so Improbable just as an FYI has, has switched over actually to like Web3, specifically they're building the metaverse for uh, the Board Ape Yacht Club. And I know that there's, you know, a lot of opinions in, in this space, but one of the things that I think about Herman, particularly as a CEO is like, he's a true believer. He has always been a true believer in the metaverse, the possibilities of MMO scale technology and like how we connect in digital spaces. And he... That's why he built Improbable in the first place. And so that's actually what attracted me to Improbable. Specifically, they were building games that they were like, we want to build games that connect on social spaces. Um, and those two games were, one was Scavengers, um, and then the other one uh, is Nightingale. And Nightingale, I think, has, has uh, shifted into being like, you know, a survival RPG, but I think like aesthetically, it's just really cool. I love that team over there. Um, and both these games, I was like, you know what, this is, sounds really interesting. And we get to build a whole entire like go to market team, publishing team, community team from the ground up. I just want to try it. And so I think going over to Improbable was just like, it's fun. And I think the reason it pushed me was um, I kind of had this feeling of like, if you don't do something that scares you, you'll blink. And like six months have passed, a year has passed. And you you won't wish that you did that one thing, but like a year will still have gone by. And especially coming out of launching Valorant, which I still like think was just like one of the most fun experiences of my life. Um, I was like, I think, I think I will get comfortable if I stay here. And I think I will blink and be here another year, another two years. And so it's time to like move cities, basically. I think I, I think the thing that really convinced me was when I graduated in Vancouver and then I had no money and I, a friend who like graduated in Toronto was like, I'm going to sub up my place for like a couple of months. You get to like move here cheap. You don't get to see the place, but like at the very least, like you get a base. And I was like, all right, fuck it. And so I just like up and went to Toronto. And that was like the biggest growth experience for me. Just like you leave your whole safety network into a, a city that you've like never been to and you just have to figure it out. And I was like, I think, I have to push myself into doing this. And so I just really enjoyed actually just being at Improbable. I think it was just like such a like fresh breath of air. Um, and 
we launched scavengers uh it did great in terms of like opening opening numbers and then and then kind of created out because i think it just didn't have like the retention that it needed but it just taught me a lot i think about like how do you work at a tech company how do you work at like a large like I, a lot of my team was in europe as well and so it was like just really interesting i think i learned just from like a texture perspective i think of life yeah that's that's incredibly motivating what you said about just like and obviously this isn't the goal for everyone, but not getting too comfortable in where you are because I actually had a really similar experience for my current role right now. I, I was living in a very small town in North Carolina um, and I had options in that town. I had options for my career, um, but none of them would really result in like a huge change, like a, a, a reinventing myself or changing my life up. Um, and then when I, I got offered this position in Los Angeles, I was like, man, moving from small town North Carolina to the one of the biggest cities in the country, that's gonna be a big change. Um so I moved I moved no support network. I I didn't even have a place to stay. Hell uh, yeah. My place fell through. It was it was a nightmare at the time, but it was it was I'm very glad that I did it because it, it, it has really changed my life towards um being outside of my comfort zone and really having to 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 scramble or die basically. Um yeah. And of course, when COVID hit, I, I got that job right in 2019. When COVID hit, they're like, "Hey, you can work remote now, uh, so you don't have to live in LA anymore." I'm like, "All right, I'm moving, moving back to I moved, I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, um, which is a nice, happy medium between in between, yeah. yeah, small small town USA and Los Angeles. Which Los Angeles was not the city for me in terms of uh, the vibe and the culture. It was just very, very fast paced and and busy and. Uh, stuff like that. So I learned that about myself as well, which is valuable. <laughs> um, I definitely think the like the idea that you learn about yourself is just so it, it's you know it's not maybe it's not for everyone, but like I knowing myself, I learn best not by like sitting and examining and and meditating. I learn by like throwing my ass into things and then being like, wow, I did not like that, <laughs> but just trying. Um, and so I think that's definitely been very helpful. It's so so easy to to stay in your comfort zone and just really do the things, eat the things you like, do the things you like, be the person you like, like no changes whatsoever. And I mean, that can work. There's no reason to say that can't work for you. I mean, if that's your goal, go ahead. But I think there's always been something like deep down in, in people that say like, Hey, make that change. Those intrusive thoughts where it's like, Hey, take that jump, do that, yeah. take that job. Another city, take that, uh, do that thing. Yeah. Do Keep that thing. thing. Eat, yeah. eat that eat that thing and you hate it and you're like okay i learned that i don't like that thing but making that change is, is scary and it's difficult but if that's for you then give it a shot because it can turn out to be really valuable um hell yeah something else that you you said um about like the web3 environment and, and you said there's a lot of opinions about stuff out there and i really like the way you phrase that because like obviously it can be a very controversial point of view like people have very strong opinions on things um from one perspective or the other and i think what really lends value to something like that is that they're willing to go against the grain for something that they believe in even if it ends up not being true one way or the other um they can take that risk and and really try something very different because that is it is very very different from from some of the things that that have been like established in the field so I will always applaud the people who are willing to try something different and sort of put their neck out there for for um something that may not end up working out 
at the end of the day, but uh, it's very thing, exciting to me. That's the thing that I think is is particularly true in in games. Like games, like people will say this, games are actually inherently very very risk averse. Um, people like just building the whole entire thing, the engine, the game, the live service, whatever it is, shipping the box is like it's so expensive that you need to like get some guarantee and gamers are so fickle and they change in taste and, and the industry and the career changes all the time. And so it's this idea of like, can you guarantee they'll love this game and how do you guarantee it? Well, they love this game, so they might love this game. And so I think that this is actually the thing that I hear a lot from particularly CEOs of companies and founders that I'm like, I'm so impressed by is every single one of them when journalists, cause I sit in on a lot of interviews with them Journalists are like, what's the thing that people were telling you when you were starting out? And they were like, everyone was telling me I was crazy. And conviction. You need so much conviction to start a game studio. You need so much conviction to just like push through and create something new. And I will just like always respect anyone who takes a run at that because it takes like just this incredible fortitude of shrugging off the haters to just ship the thing. And so I'm like, hell yeah, like do it. Even if it's crazy, even if like it does something weird, like it moves the conversation forward. Yeah. And it's so, it's so easy for people to leverage hindsight and look back on, on projects that may have failed and be like, man, that was dumb idiot. Why would he ever think that would work? Um, but like you said, like so many great projects and companies have started because that one in a thousand person, one in a million person was able to stick with their guns and, and really hone that idea to be like, use their vision to make something different. And I, I, it's frustrating when people don't at least respect the idea of it. If they, even if they don't respect the, the motivation or, or, or the, the methods that right. they're using, they don't, if they don't at least respect the idea of the innovation, I, I, I definitely don't appreciate that. Um, and it's really easy to be negative about things. Um, and I think very easy, very, yeah. very easy to be negative about things, especially when you perceive it as, as something that goes against your personal beliefs. Um, right. So having an open mind on stuff, even when, when it seems to be not your personal worldview or your, your, even a larger community's personal worldview is very, a very valuable asset to, I think having at least, a a balanced perspective on stuff like that and i will um, say like okay I'm, I'm assuming that anyone listening and actually the second thing would also be like i may be running out of time i gotta go make dinner but okay um uh for anyone who wants to work in this field particularly about communications and community um this is like the thing that you need to have is both the ability to have an open mind but also the like the means to respect and articulate other perspectives uh and do and give them like respect and and charitable interpretations because if you can make any worldview make sense then you can make your worldview make sense but you have to like really love and appreciate that there are people out there who have very different worldviews from you that are informed by very different circumstances and by going out and being able to understand like what's informing that rather than dismissing it you just like make your craft so much better. Um, and I can't think of any other craft, any craft actually that doesn't get better by doing this, but I think community communications, especially like do this, learn this. Don't just like be like, I'm a player. And therefore I think that players, all players should think this way, challenge yourself, push yourself because that's just like how you get better. 
for sure. Um, so I don't know how much time you have left. Uh, we had actually been talking for a lot longer than I realized. <laughs> we had such a great discussion. Sorry about, about that. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I will never, um, I'll never be unhappy that we had too much things to talk about. Um, if you didn't have a lot of time left today to finish the questions, uh, we could we could either turbo through some of them right now, or if you wanted, you could come back on maybe next week and we could sort of revisit some of these topics and then really dive more into uh, theorycraft. I'm happy either way. I mean, it depends on like how much content you think I'm I'm good for or not good for. If you like, <laughs> I would. I think the main thing that uh, I would like to do is definitely shill uh, a little bit more of theorycraft just in in this moment. And so what I can do is probably uh, how about this? We can. We can do this again at some point in time when you're like, hey, everyone's not sick of you anymore. Um, and and I'd like to show Theorycraft specifically in that, um, if it's okay, if I can go into my spiel. Absolutely, go ahead. It would be one, uh, please sign up. Like, actually, like join us on Discord. I think that's probably the main thing. Just like join us on Discord, Theorycraft, uh, discord.gg slash Theorycraft. Um, we are hosting a getting into game design career panel actually just tomorrow. Um, and we plan to just continue rolling these things, talking about anything, like pretty much any topic that people are interested in. Um, two, we are playtesting as frequently as we possibly can. If you want to sign up, you can sign up on our website. Uh, just click on the community tab. Um, and then we're accepting just like generally players. If you're interested and um, not in North America, then just reach out to me and I'll probably just get you in. Um, we run these playtests, we're hoping like, you know, maybe monthly. and. We just take feedback, we iterate, we evolve, we just try to make this game as fun as possible. Um, and that's like the main thing, I think. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell everyone. We would just like love to have more people in here. We invite like hundreds at a time, so we're kind of burning through a lot of playtesters just to show them the game. Uh, so so that um, the game design panel was on December 7th, what time? Uh, at 3 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. Okay, December 7th, 3 p.m. Pacific time on discord.gg slash theorycraft. Check it out. I think the overlap between people who are interested in this podcast and people who are interested in stuff like that is probably fairly high. So hopefully you get to hear this in time and or see this in time and join in there. But um, you said you do that sort of thing fairly often. So we're trying to scale them up into like at least maybe like once a month, maybe once every couple of weeks if we can. So yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, definitely check that out. Um, and then I'm, I'm personally signed up for the play test. I'm very excited for it. Um, is the date public? The next playtest date? Uh, the next, yeah, the next playtest dates are December fifteenth and sixteenth. Um, and so I, I'm still sending out invites because I'm still trying to figure out like a new flow where we hack together. Um, so sign up and then maybe I'll randomly so you. We have we try to keep like a handful of people, like a group that we're like they're interested. We invite them in waves, and so um, we also have unlimited friend referrals once you're on the inside. So Ooh. maybe I'll I'll refer some friends. Into yeah. It. Um, yeah, so I actually, I mean, I had a whole page of questions about theorycraft and stuff, but I know that you're running out of time. Um, so I'd, I'd love to revisit you, uh, these with you sometime, um, maybe in the near future if you've got time. But let's just go yeah. over our main takeaways and wrapping up so I can let you go make dinner. Um, so these are questions I like to ask every guest on the show who comes on and sort of like gauge the different answers and, and, and see if we can learn from them. So what are some of the skills and habits that you focused on and you recommend to people wanting a similar role? We've talked a bit about that, but elevator pitch. I think the main thing is learn to analyze communities. Uh, specifically, like don't just form your opinion and then walk away holding that opinion. 
try to challenge yourself by digging into communities and alternative perspectives that disagree with you and try to understand why they believe the things that they believe. I think that's like, that's just really crucial because that'll just help you understand when you get into a really sticky situation, you have crises to deal with, you have PR stuff, whatever. It's this idea of like, people believe otherwise, why do they believe that? You need to have the skill set to do that. And that's like a journalistic background, but like hone that. Um, anytime you see a developer getting into trouble with something, go figure out why, and then go figure out deeper. Like go read every single comment you can and construct as many like different arguments around why you think it's a good thing or a bad thing. Okay. Um, that's fantastic advice. What is one thing that you wish you could go back in time and tell young Chris who's in college? Like, this is what you need to do to become successful. Honestly, I wouldn't tell him anything. I, <laughs> I'd be like, fucking deal with it, man. Like, I think I'm, I'm a bit of a hard ass. I think maybe I would say like, hey, like, it's going to suck before it gets better. Like, it's going to really suck. But even then, I actually don't even think I would do that because I think like part of the journey, like if somebody came, sorry, I'm playing too hard into the metaphor, but if, someone, <laughs> if I came back to my future self and was like, it's going to get better, I'm like, that's already given me some kind of extrinsic thing. I'm like, really, old me, he had everything he needed. He just needed to push. And so like if someone came and said like it gets better, like he didn't need that. What he needed to do was just like get grit. That's a different answer than what I've heard <laughs> previously. I love it. Um, we've we've talked about this too. Uh, you did a great job of, of covering some of my questions before I could even ask them. But um, dream job, if not working in games. Book publishing, definitely. Or journalism. I think journalism, just like both of those things, the reason just being, I always want to like hear from different perspectives and like people who like really also want to connect with the world. And I think journalists and book editors specifically also work in that space. But I'm kind of like, I think in, in my dream job. For sure. And then last question, who are some of the big people that inspire and motivate you to be a better person? Honestly, I think uh, there's people who inspire me to be a better person. It's just like, I think people who are my friends and, and uh, my SO and things like that. I think just like, as long as I'm, I always want to cultivate people who like really push me in that space. Like, I guess morally uh, people I admire and I grow from, honestly, a lot of CEOs, like I think, uh, there's been like an insane amount of game studios coming out that I just like really want to give a shout out to like Treehouse Games, like Michael Chu, Andreas Sapensis, Brian Chen are like, you know, creating a great social game. It sounds like LED Games with David Banks, Christina Norman, Bonfire Games, Min Kim, Rob Pardo, Frost Giant, Second Dinner, Singularity Six. Um, I worked with Anthony Leung, big fan of him. Uh, Hidden Leaf, who just like launched Fangs. Um, and Bao is their CEO. Like I'm friends with him, play a lot of games with him. Um, congratulations also to like, Omega Strikers and Odyssey, like I think Henkel, Dax, Decap, Eric, like they were kind of one of the first studios to kind of strike out from Riot and always had a lot of faith in them. I think their game is a lot of fun. So I hope people continue to play that. But I'm like, these are people who like walked away from the comfort of Riot and Blizzard and just said like, fuck it, I'll do it myself. And I think that's like really crazy. Yeah, so. that's, that's definitely, it takes a lot of courage to do. And it takes that, it takes that driving factor where it's like doing something that's a risk, but you believe that you need to do it for, for that change in your life. Well, thanks, Chris, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. We've talked for about um, maybe an hour and 45 minutes now, and we didn't even cover all of our topics. So, uh, Sorry, like I said, I'm very, uh, I'm very verbose. <laughs> I'd I always love to have more content than, than not enough, but um, hopefully we can have you back on the show 
very soon and we can cover the rest of this. But until then, uh, you go, can go ahead and follow Chris on Twitter at uh, Pwiff, P-W-Y-F-F. Don't forget the W. That'd be very embarrassing. Um, and check out Theorycraft Games. Check out the Loki community site, discord.tv slash theorycraft. And what is the, is theorycraft.com or theorycraft.inc? Theorycraftgames.com. Theorycraftgames.com. Check it out there. Sign up for the play tests. They're going to be very fun. I'm very excited to, to join in. Um, anything else you want to plug? That's about it. Come sign up. Come play test with us. Come join our community. For sure. Uh, and if you like the podcast, if you like the show, you can watch us live at twitch.tv slash, twitch.tv slash Nighthawk 20,000. And if you can't watch us live, you can watch us on YouTube as well. All the VODs go up there pretty much the same day, youtube.com slash Nighthawk 20,000. And if you don't want to watch the show, you can always listen on all major Spotify or all major audio platforms like Spotify, Google, Anchor, um, and whatever else, Stitcher. There's a ton of them out there now. Uh, we're on all of them, I'm pretty sure. And if, if we're not, give me a shout and I'll, I'll make sure they're on there. Uh, <laughs> so and if you want to follow the show, give us a rating. That helps out. I do this for fun. There's no obligation from listeners. Uh, I'm not trying to be a big, big podcast star. So don't feel like the need that you have to push it or anything. But if you want to help us out, join the Discord, tell your friends, just just share the news. It's a, it's a fun show and I really enjoy doing it. And thank you so much for spending your time and listening to me and Chris uh, talk about games. Thank you, everyone. This has been a fantastic interview. Really appreciate it.